Welcome back to A People's History of the Old Republic, episode 6.9, Apathy is Death. Also, nice. Last time, we saw the Companions split up to defeat the Sith and General Vaklu on Dixun and Onderon, and talked about the similarities between Knights of the Old Republic 2 and The Last Jedi. Now it's time to talk about the game's most important set piece and watch the remaining Jedi Masters get what they fucking deserve. I'm Luke, that's Kelsey, and there's always a bit of truth in Legends. Huh. So, Knights of the Old Republic 2, Part 9, Confrontation at the Rebuilt Enclave. Alright, so we're going to set this stage for the massive set piece that the game teases for hours, and we've been teasing since probably the first episode of the show. To give some perspective, the encounter at the rebuilt Dantooine Enclave is intended as KOTOR 2's version of the reveal in KOTOR 1. Everything to this point in the game has been leading up to this encounter, and the rest of the game will deal with the fallout therefrom. Though the, first, though the two set pieces are obviously dissimilar in some ways, that's an intentional decision by Obsidian. Um, in episode 6.0, we discussed that one of the ideas that Bioware gave Obsidian when transitioning the project was to have the player character be taught and then betrayed by a member of Yoda's species who turned to the dark side. The ultimate betrayal from someone who the player would trust implicitly, you know, because Yoda. Obsidian decided not to take this route because they wanted to tell a personal story, not one that centered on a big reveal like the first game. KOTOR 2 makes it pretty obvious that Kreia has ulterior motives, and by the time you return to Dantooine, her fall to the dark side is barely concealed subtext. Darth Trya even mocks the player on Malachor 5 if they didn't figure it out. But this set piece does feature a different reveal, one that is far more personal to the player. Mitra Surik will find out why she was deaf into the Force and the real reason for her exile, which will in turn shatter her entire sense of self. The reveal that Kraya fell to the dark side might have been surprising on some level, but the Jedi Masters describing Surik as a void that siphons off life and power from everyone who follows her is a sucker punch. They imply that her companions only follow because she manipulates them through the Force and lay everything bad that has happened to the galaxy and the Jedi since Malachor V at her feet. Luckily, Kraya is there to protect the exile. It's a tag team boss fight by debate against all three Jedi Masters, just like the debate boss fight that Surik had with Atris in episode 6.3. We're going to handle this similarly to how we handled Revan's reveal in episode 5.7, where we played the game audio and then uh, would come back to discuss it after. However, since the audio for this confrontation is much longer than Revan's reveal, we will break it up into three sections. The first is Kreia and Surik in the courtyard and the beginning of the Exiles debate with the Jedi Council. The second section spans the Council's explanation for Surik's exile, the reveal about her true nature, and her sentencing. The third and final section includes Kreia's stirring defense of her student and passing judgment on the Jedi Council. Because of its length, some of the audio from each section was removed, though we will still discuss that after each section. Back in the game, the Ebon Hawk touches down on Dantooine, and a cutscene immediately takes us to the rebuilt Jedi Enclave. 
After Sirik and Master Vruk Lamar led the defense of Kunda, the reputation of the Jedi was rehabilitated significantly. In a show of appreciation, the natives of Dantooine pitched in and helped restore the Enclave. On the first trip to Dantooine, the player finds that the Enclave is a shell of its former self, where once stood a stone rotunda uh, encircled by stone fins protruding toward the sky, there was now mostly rubble. The rotunda was mostly caved in, exposing the inner chambers to the elements for five years, causing weeds and vines to grow all over the structure. And while the fins still stood tall, they were cracking under the weight of a crumbling foundation, and one fin had a hole blown in it. The inside was a death trap, and the main level was totally inaccessible. But all that changes on the return trip to Dantooine as the player finds the Enclave looking more like it did in Knights of the Old Republic 1. The rotunda wall has been reconstructed and they patch the holes in that one fin. The main entry has been restored too, which is where Sirik and Kreia wait. This is where the first section begins. In this section, you'll only hear Kreia's voice before we come back to talk about what happened and the parts we cut. Forgive me, but I need to rest. Go on. The council awaits. I will remain here. Whatever answers the council have are for you alone. I am tired. The journey has been a long one, and I need to center myself. Know that much may happen here, but above all, do not forget this. You may trust in me. We cradle each other's lives, and what threatens one of us threatens us both. And if you find you cannot trust me, trust in your training, trust in yourself. Never doubt what you have done. All your decisions have brought you to this point. And now, perhaps, they shall see what you have become. Alright. As the clip begins, Surik and Kraya are exploring the main level of the Enclave, the large tree that once stood in the central courtyard is long dead, little more than a black rotting stump. However, two other trees are growing in the courtyard now, in the same spot where the old one rots. The camera pans around this courtyard and the area looks the same as it did in KOTOR 1, save for the foliage and vines covering much of the structure. As Surik approaches the entrance to the Jedi Council meeting chamber, Kraya slowly sits down, on a makeshift bench in the courtyard and begs off, saying the journey has made her tired, but the exile senses more. She presses Kraya, believing her master is afraid of what will happen, and that's true, but not for the reason Surik thinks. Kraya is afraid for Surik, her surrogate daughter. She's afraid of what the exile will learn and afraid of how the council will react. Had everything gone according to plan, Kraya would not have revealed herself to the Jedi here. She had kept her existence a secret the entire journey, and she would have preferred to leave it that way, but the Jedi Masters are far too stubborn for that. This is the point where the audio began. Surik is walking to her fateful confrontation while Kraya stays behind, but that Master has some final words of encouragement for her apprentice. 
quote, and if you find you cannot trust me, trust in your training, trust in yourself. Never doubt what you have done. All your decisions have brought you to this point, end quote. Music swells and the exile approaches the Jedi Council meeting chamber, which is the large circular room where Revan and Bastion met with the Council in the first game. The room has changed some since then, however. The two trees that grew in the rotunda are still present but seem to be dying. The roof of the rotunda was beyond repair, so now it's an open-air chamber with sun shining in, grass covering the floor, vines hanging from the walls. The rebuilt enclave is a sight to behold, and it will make a fitting tomb in which to bury the remnants of the once mighty Jedi Order. As Sarek approaches, the remaining members of the Jedi High Council, Kavar, Ruklamar, and Zeskael, are arrayed from left to right. The dialogue starts out amiably enough, at least until Ruklamar accused the exile of coming to seek revenge. He's just being a dick as usual because if Sarek wanted to kill the Masters, it would have been far simpler to fight them solo in lieu of fighting all three at once. That's also an option in the game, fighting all of them. Uh, in restored content, Brianna approaches Kreia in the courtyard and, and learns that Atris is not present. Brianna is also the first to fully comprehend that the aged ex-Jedi has fallen to the dark side, a fact that Kreia confirms, saying, quote, what was Jedi is Sith and what is Sith is Jedi, end quote. Back in the main chamber, Sarek is trying her damnedest to get the Jedi to declare themselves again, rally any willing parties to their cause, and strike out against the Sith. The remaining masters went into exile in 3952 with the intention of drawing the Sith out into the open, which occurred when Darth Nihilus openly supplied troops to Vaklu on Onderon. Instead, Vruk Lamar says the Jedi will do what they always do. Wait. They believe that the true threat is still lurking in the shadows and that it is waiting for the Jedi to show themselves. They have excuses for wanting to wait, but Surik knows better. They're hesitating just like they did with the Mandalorian Wars. The Jedi Council doesn't want to lead. If they did, they'd be dead on Qatar with the rest of their order. Carthonassi has been trying to link the Republic and Jedi up for months now, but still they wait. And it's not like the Republic has much of a leg to stand on. It's falling apart too, but at least they're trying. Vrut goes so far as to say that waging a war against the Sith would result in a meaningless death for the Jedi Order, and the deaths of the Masters would mean a sure Sith victory. Again, they are scared of facing the future, scared of their own mortality. We get another recitation of what happened on Qatar, with Lamar confirming that Masters Zarlestan and Vander Vandar Toker perish there. Qatar left a wound in the force that still exists there to this day and still broadcast echoes of the pain and death there. This is where we start getting into the nature of wounds in the force and see how Kraya plans to kill the force. The concept of a wound in the force was created by KOTOR 2, but the origins trace all the way back to A New Hope, when Obi-Wan felt the destruction of Alderaan through the force. Wounds are caused by cataclysms and massacres where death occurs on massive scale, such as the death of a planet. Because the force is an energy field that flows through all living things, death on that scale tears a physical weakness in the fabric of the force itself. The wounds act as dead spots in the force, creating a type of white noise that distorted the force and its use. 
A wound of sufficient power could totally blind Jedi to the Force while in its midst. Wounds then manifested the pain that created them as echoes that radiate out, creating ripples in the Force as they travel. The echoes can be faint or pulse and resonate, not unlike how pain radiates through the human body after energy. Force users could perceive the echoes as waves through the Force with intense echoes totally distorting the Force. Powerful dark side users also create wounds, which explains how a dark side nexus like the cave on Dagobah or Freedom Dad's tomb on Duxun could remain for centuries, even after the dark influences were purged. In 3951, a few known wounds exist at Malachor V and Qatar, while Mitra Surik and Darth Nihilus carry their wounds everywhere. During her time studying Revan and teaching Nihilus, Kraya learned all of this and came to believe that if she killed a wound in the Force at the location of the wound on Malachor V, she could create an echo so powerful that it would travel to the ends of the universe, permanently blinding the galaxy to the Force. And the weird thing is, the Jedi Masters also believe it's possible. I will play the second section of audio, which includes the three... the voices of the three Jedi Masters, Kavar, Vruk Lamar, and Zez Kael, in that order. Kraya, eavesdropping through the Force, is briefly heard speaking to the Exile through their bond. We were wondering when you would arrive. This moment has taken some time to reach us, and I imagine you have many questions. Or perhaps you've come for revenge. We cast you out of the Order because you followed Revan to war. There was no other reason. No, there was another. You had become different somehow, changed. The war had changed you. You were no longer a Jedi, but we could not tell you why. Some explanations mean nothing unless the one who suffers comes to the answer on their own. What had happened to you was punishment enough, and the Jedi do not kill their prisoners. And if you had stayed, you would have changed us. And that we could not allow. Have you noticed that when you act, others follow? Those that travel with you. They follow you without question, without hesitation. Against their instincts, and sometimes against their sense. It is because you are a leader, but that still fails to grasp the meaning of what I'm trying to tell you. It is not an easy thing to explain. Surely you are familiar with force bonds. It is the bond that develops between apprentice and master when one truly understands another. It is developed over time through understanding of each other. Yet you do it so easily and we do not know why. You make connections through the Force, and it resonates with those who travel with you. The resonance is even greater when they too are Force-sensitive. Your actions affect others more than you know. You draw others to you, especially those strong in the Force. When you suffer, their spirit echoes it. And when they are in pain, their pain becomes yours. And that is why the Mandalorian Wars echo within you still. We did not cut you off from the Force. You were merely deafened to it. Because of that last battle of the Mandalorian Wars. The screams of countless thousands, Jedi and Mandalorians, crushed by the planet's gravity, annihilated. Their lives still scream across the surface of that dead planet, and within you. To hear the Force over such pain, it is not possible. It was too much for any Jedi to endure, and it is a wonder that you did not die there when thousands perished, all those you had fought with and struggled with. You cut yourself off because you had to if you were to survive, 
You had hints of it in the war on Doxon. Malachor was simply the final blow. You were deafened. At last, you could hear. You were broken. You were whole. You were blinded. And at last, you saw. When you returned to us, we saw what had happened. You carry all those deaths at Malachor within you. And it has left a hole, a hunger that cannot be filled. In you, we saw a wound in the Force. In you, we saw the end of the Force. You are a cipher, forming bonds, leeching the life of others, siphoning their will and dominating them. It is the teaching of these new Sith to feed on others, on other Force sensitives. They are symptomatic of the wound in the Force. You are a breach that must be closed. You transmit your pain, your suffering through the Force. Within you we see something worse than merely the teachings of the Sith. What you carry may mean the death of the Force and the death of the Jedi. It is not the strength of a Jedi you feel. He's right. It's all the death you've caused to get here. You feed on it and you grow stronger. You're like Malachor. It's in you, it's what you are now. You must have noticed as you fought across all these planets, killing hundreds, only to become more and more powerful. Why do you think that was? But what's worse is that bonding you have. It hasn't gone away. It's gotten stronger. And the more attachments you form, the more you draw others to you. And that is why you are a threat to us all. What if other Jedi went to war as you did, suffered the same events, and emerged as you did? What if there was a crucible that trained such Jedi to consume and kill? For you, Malachor was that crucible. What's worse is the Sith that we face. I fear that they have learned the lesson of Malachor all too well. It is what allows them to prey on Force users, to become stronger when Force sensitives are near. Somehow they have learned their hunger from you. And so you have brought about the end of the Jedi, and perhaps all the knowledge of the Force. But it is of no consequence. Your ability to make such connections, such bonds, so easily are why you cannot remain. You are a threat to living creatures and all who feel the Force. You will lead the Sith here, and that we cannot allow. Our judgment before remains. Exile. You must leave. And you must leave without your tie to the Force. It is a punishment reserved for only a few, and only when necessary. But we have the power to cut you off from the Force, and it must be done. Forgive us, but it is necessary. Do not be afraid. You shall feel no pain, but this must be done. As long as you feel the Force, you are a danger to those around you. When Surik asked for the real reason she was exiled from the Order, Ruklamar lies to her face, saying that it was because she followed Revan to war. But that's obviously false, false, and it's weird to start out with a lie because everything else they say is ostensibly true. Uh, or at least they believe it anyway. Kavar then condescends to his former protege, saying that the real reason was not something they could tell her. It was an answer that the exile had to learn on her own. But again, that's absolute bullshit because they sent her off to the Outer Rim without her connection to the Force, and there she remained for eight lonely years, not even knowing there was another question to be asked. 
Surik wouldn't have even known there was another and far more important reason she was exiled if T3 and 4 hadn't swiped the Jedi Council logs from Atrus on Telos 4. All of this posturing is just further evidence that the Jedi are cowards and fools who haven't learned a damn thing despite presiding over the death of their order. The second section of audio is where we get to the heart of the failures of, of the order and their total failure to fully appreciate both Surik and the Sith threat they faced. So while much of the Three Man Council so while much of what the Three Man Council says about Surik and her wound is correct, the Jedi Masters misunderstood the implications of that information and then used their bad conclusions to turn Surik into a convenient scapegoat. The exile is clearly growing frustrated by the Council's cryptic bullshit, and they finally mercifully decide to stop beating around the bush. Zezkael states that the real reason the Council exiled Surik is because she would have changed them, and that change could not be allowed. He doesn't just mean change via leadership, but through her subconscious ability to form force bonds. Those force bonds form very quickly for Surik, quicker than any Jedi before or since, something that the Jedi Masters don't understand. The Masters believe that these bonds cause others to follow Surik against their good sense and better judgment, and the Council feared that if Surik remained, her bonding would have changed them too. But Surik's bonds go much deeper than subconscious, subtle influence. They are as strong as the force bonds formed between master and apprentice or between two people in love. These force bonds form powerful connections that go both ways between Surik and the other individual. Thus, when Surik feels pain, it is echoed within her followers, and when her followers feel pain, that pain is made manifest in Surik. The two-way connection is even stronger when the other individual is force-sensitive. This description seems to echo the bonds we've seen in Star Wars before, where Force users feel the death of a loved one across the galaxy or are physically affected by the sudden breaking of that Force bond. So, unbeknownst to Surik, she had subconsciously formed thousands of Force bonds with her troops, which made her a better leader, but also meant that she could feel their deaths. The breaking of these force bonds had already taken its toll on Mitra Surik by the time she lost more than 75% of her army at the Battle of Duxun. But Malachor V was exponentially worse. At Malachor V in 3960, Surik was given command of one half of the Republic fleet, while Revan took the other half and fled to a nearby system to spring the trap against the Mandos. Surik's fleet was bait and took heavy casualties, but when Revan jumped into the system and closed the swinging gate, the Mandalorians were trapped. Then, at the time appointed by Revan, Surik ordered Bowder to activate his trap card, a super weapon called the Mass Shadow Generator. The weapon created a supercharged gravity well that violently ripped every ship in its wake out of orbit and slammed them into Malachor V simultaneously, shattering the planet to its core. At the moment of activation, Surik felt force bonds break with tens of thousands of troops simultaneously, force bonds she wasn't even aware of. All that death and pain and the breaking of those bonds hit Surik all at once, and it would have killed her, but she subconsciously cut herself off from the force to save her own life. That much trauma and death can't be shouldered by one person, especially one who simultaneously felt all of them ripped out of the living force at once. (sighs) 
Master Kavar puts it bluntly, quote, you cut yourself off because you had to if you were to survive, end quote. The revelation that she cut herself off from the forest overwhelms Surik. For eight years, she wandered the fringes of known space, believing that she was cut off from the force as punishment, but instead it was a self-conscious, a subconscious act, uh, reflex of self-preservation. The only Jedi to ever create force bonds in such a manner, the only Jedi to ever cut herself off from the force in such a way. In response to so much death and the breaking of thousands of force bonds, Surik became a walking wound. She carries a physical manifestation of the pain, death, and trauma from all her battles with her, and the wound is constantly sending echoes that transmit her feelings through the Force. As we've mentioned a few times in our series on KOTOR 2, the exile's condition is never explicitly called PTSD or depression, but it sure looks a lot like both of those from our armchair psychology. Uh, strip the force away from it. And this is a story about a flawed person who experienced untold trauma, who withdrew from everything for years before reentering society and coming to terms with their past and the trauma they faced. Despite her best efforts in the game, the exile isn't a pure paragon of virtue. She's a flawed individual with the weight of the universe bearing down on her. She needs a shitload of therapy, if only she could ever find the time. If the story is starting to hit close to home for you, that's intentional. KOTOR 2 is a personal story in a way that KOTOR never was. That doesn't necessarily make it better, but it means you might see a lot more of yourself and your own struggles in the exile than you did with Revan, who was intentionally left as a blank slate. Uh, back in the game, the confrontations start to go off the rails. Everything the Jedi Masters have said so far has been true, but they're about to show just how badly they misinterpreted the data. This is the point in the audio where the Masters denounce Surik, but Kreia answers each charge in Surik's head. Kreia is still in the courtyard, but is using the force bond she and Surik share to counter the Masters. The words of the Masters represent Surik as she was after Malachor V, but each is rebutted by Kraya and represents Surik as she is in the present day on Danduin. The comparisons show how far she has come since Malachor V. Master Lamar says that Surik was deafened, but Kraya retorts that Surik can hear. Master, Le- Master Kavar laments that Surik was broken, but Kraya replies that Surik has been made whole. Finally, Master Zez Kael says that Surik was blinded, but Kraya mocks the Jedi and tells Surik that, at long last, she can see. This is the point when Kraya reveals she must re- realizes she must reveal herself to the Jedi, even though she didn't intend to do so. She stands and prepares to enter just in time to save her most prized student as the Jedi begin their denouncement of what they believed Surik had become. Up to this point, the Jedi had been cantankerous but helpful, finally giving Surik a full understanding of what happened to her connection to the Force and why she was exiled. However, the tone of the confrontation shifts, becoming downright hostile with personal attacks against Surik for the Council's failures. Zez Kai is the first to say it, but the Jedi fear that Surik's wound could lead to the death of the Force and the death of all life. The concept might seem impossible if more for the fact that two separate groups with wildly divergent motives independently came to the exact same conclusion about wounds in the Force. It should be noted, however, that Kraya has no intention of killing all life, just the Force. 
The Jedi seem to believe the two are intertwined. Sirik protests that she has regained her connection to the Force and is stronger than ever, but her pleas fall on deaf ears. Vruk proclaims that the Exile can't actually feel the Force, but instead uses her innate Force bonding and wound to become, quote, a cipher forming bonds, leeching the life of others, siphoning their will and dominating them, end quote. That's plenty rude, but Vruk isn't done. Quote, you are a breach that must be closed. You transmit your pain, your suffering through the Force. Within you, we see something worse than the teachings of the Sith. What you carry may mean the death of the Force and the death of the Jedi. End quote. Sirk should have realized long ago that this pitiful council remnant would never work with her in good faith, but this confirmed it. The Exile showed up looking for allies to confront the Sith Triumvirate, but the Jedi Masters instead put her on trial again. Despite knowing that Sirk has no control over how these bonds form, the council describes her as a life-draining parasite who only has followers because she forces them into it. To the council, Sirk doesn't have companions or even friends, just a cadre of mindless zombies doing her bidding through subconscious mental domination. Imagine being told that the people you think are your closest friends only follow you because they have to. That's just brutal. To the council, Sirk isn't the selfless individual who spent the past few weeks defeating the exchange, securing better treatment for refugees, subduing a Sith-backed coup, and building a coalition of allies to help defeat the Sith Triumvirate, all while stabilizing three worlds and the Republic. Hell, the council doesn't even view her as a former Jedi who was wrongly exiled who deserves an explanation. To them, Sirk is a breach to be closed, an anomaly that must be resolved before it destroys the Jedi and the Force. And they're not saying that Sirk has caused problems or made poor choices, but that her mere existence, something she can't and could never control, is anathema. She's told that she isn't a Force user anymore, at least not in the traditional sense. She's just a black hole sucking up Force energies from others to manipulate the Force. Kavar says that Sirik is feeding on the people she's killed across numerous worlds since Paragus, growing stronger on all that pain and death. The Council fears that some crucible or training ground might one day exist to train and seduce other Jedi to the dark side using the teachings of Malachor V. Teachings that the Jedi fear the Sith learned all too well. In no uncertain terms, the Council blames Sirik for the decline and fall of the Jedi Order. Quote, somehow they have learned their hunger from you, and you have brought about the end of the Jedi, and perhaps all, all the knowledge of the Force. End quote. At first blush, this whole shift in the dialogue from explanation to denunciation by the Jedi Council seems like a completely off-base bit of character assassination and scapegoating. Which it definitely is. But here's the thing. The Council is right about the basics of a great many things. The Jedi Masters are absolutely correct about how wounds in the Force work. They are right that wounds in the Force constantly absorb pain and death from the Force and from living things, growing stronger the more they absorb. Wounds do cause disruptions in Force abilities. They do grow stronger when Force sensitives are near. And they do emit echoes. 
Those echoes do ripple through the force, transmitting the wounds, pain, and death, and cause disruptions in the force wherever they travel. The council is also right to surmise that a wound or echo in the force could be used to cause the death of the force, which we discussed earlier in Cryo's plan. And as far as we know, the council is right about the exile's connection to the force. It appears that Zurich never truly reestablished her connection to the force after Malachor V, at least not as we typically understand that connection. Whereas Zurich blinded herself to the force, her wound in the force is quite literally a black hole for force energies. Her wound draws the force in, and Zurich is then able to use that to manipulate and project the force. On a fundamental level, Zurich is absolutely a cipher for the force. Of course, that's really a long-winded way of saying she can use the force again after blinding herself to it and splitting hairs to worry about the specifics of how it works. Her wound still acts like a force black hole, and she can use the force regardless of the explanation. Zurich has grown stronger around force sensitives because they have stronger connections to the force, and the wound has higher midichlorian counts upon which to draw. But you didn't expect us to Bet you didn't expect us to work midichlorians into a KOTOR 2 narrative. Also, getting stronger as you go along is just how RPGs work, but it's a good way of working that concept into the story nonetheless. So the Jedi Masters are close to being right about Surik, but as the old saying goes, close only counts in horseshoes, hand grenades, and nuclear weapons. They got most of the basics down, but they whiffed badly on everything else. Yes, Surik is powerful even beyond her own understanding. And yes, the force bonds she forms are unpredictable and uncontrollable. And admittedly, there's a very real possibility that her power could be manipulated by a powerful and clever Sith Lord to bring about the death of the force, but that's not the point, damn it. At best, that's an argument for close oversight and training, not punishment. And regardless of how she manipulates the Force now, Surik has done more good for the Republic and Jedi Order in the few weeks she's been back in the galaxy than the so-called Masters have in years. This is the point in the clip where everything starts to snowball out of control as the Masters reach a verdict on Surik in a trial she didn't even know was happening. The Council believes Surik is a threat, not just to herself, but to others around her and to everyone in the galaxy. When Surik protests her innocence, Vruk chides her, quote, What if other Jedi went to war as you did, suffered the same events, and emerged as you did? What if there was a crucible that trained such Jedi to consume and kill? End quote. The Council then accuses Surik of being the architect of the Sith atrocities, intentionally or otherwise. The council claims that she used Malachor V as a crucible to train herself and that the Sith somehow learned the lessons from Surik's experience at Malachor V. But here's where the Jedi Masters betray their ineptitude and failures. The Sith didn't nebulously learn the lessons of Malachor V from Surik as she was exiled almost immediately. Instead, the Sith learned those lessons at the Treyas Academy and other similar academies across the galaxy that trained fallen Jedi to consume and kill, all of which were created by Darth Revan in 3959. The crucible that the Masters feared Surik would create has been in existence for eight fucking years, and the Jedi had no clue. All the amazing Jedi we've talked about on the show, and we're left with these three idiots for a Jedi Council. 
Tot Danita, Zane Karak, Zara Lustin, Thawne, Vandar Toker, Jolie Bindo, Johani, and pretty much every other Jedi we've talked about in the Old Republic died and were left with this pitiful remnant. The very last bit of the second section of the confrontation is Cirque's punishment after being found guilty at her surprise trial. Just before this, however, there's a cutscene courtesy of the RCM. Kraya is preparing to make her dramatic entrance to defend Cirque, but is interrupted by Visasmar. These two have never really liked each other, so there's no love lost here. Mar goads Kraya, saying, quote, I would have thought you'd walk with her amongst the Jedi, but that is not the way of the Sith, is it? End quote. Kraya doesn't have time for a fight, though, and instead knocks the Miraluka Jedi unconscious with force choke. In the council chamber, Vruk Lamar pronounces judgment, saying, quote, Your ability to make such connections, such bonds, so easily are why you cannot remain. You are a threat to living creatures and all who feel the force, end quote. They've turned Surik into the ultimate scapegoat. Some dialogue even points to them blaming her for Qatar. However, the council isn't going to kill Surik. The Jedi don't kill their prisoners, remember? Instead, they're going to permanently cut Surik off from the Force, just like Nomi Sunrider did to Ulic Keldroma in 3996 BBY in Tales of the Jedi. We discussed th- those events in episode 4.7, aptly titled Blinded by the Light. But there's a key difference between Nomi Sunrider and the Remnant Council. This confederacy of dunces has passed the same judgment on the Exile after careful deliberation, and they're using Sunrider as a precedent. However, Nomi blinded Ulik in a moment of extreme anger and grief when she underestimated her power, and it was something she regretted for the rest of her life. As the second section ends, the council prepares to carry out its sentence, immobilizing Surik with the Force and assuring her that she will feel no pain. Now we'll start the third and final section, which contains Kreia's stirring defense of Mitra Surik. When the clip begins, you'll hear Kreia's voice as she breaks the council's hold on her student, using force push to throw her to throw them back. This is followed by a brief debate between Kreia and Masters Kavar, Fruk Lamar, and Zeskael before the newly revealed Dark Lord passes her final judgment and, for all intents and purposes, ends the Jedi Order as we know it. Enough! Step away from her. What? Step away! She has brought truth, and you condemn it. The arrogance. You will not harm her. You will not harm her ever again. I thought you had died in the Mandalorian Wars. Die? No. Became stronger. Yes. Is this your new master, Exile? If so, then you follow Revan's path. Her teachings will cause you to fall as surely as he did. She is difficult to see. She's like a shadow of the Exile. We sought to lure the Sith out, and now they have come to us. How could you ever hope to know the threat you face when you have never walked in the dark places of the galaxy, faced war and death on such a scale? If you had traveled far enough, rather than waiting for the Echo to reach you, perhaps you would have seen it for what it was. Did you not hear its call on Dantooine Vrook? 
on its scarred surface and in the minds of the settlers. I have endured your corruption of my other students. You shall not have this one. And you, Kavar, so close to the call of ducks, and tell me, did you not feel what poured from the moon, what had taken place there? And Zezkael, to hide upon Narshada, yet blind yourself to all that happens there, so close to understanding the Force, so close to giving it up. There is a place in the galaxy where the dark side of the Force runs strong. It is something of the Sith, but it was fueled by war. It corrupts all that walks on its surface, drowns them in the power of the dark side. It corrupts all life, and it feeds on death. Revan knew the power of such places, and the power in making them. They can be used to break the will of others, of Jedi, promising them power and turning them to the dark side. Did you never wonder how Revan corrupted so many of the Jedi, so much of the Republic, so quickly? The Mandalorian Wars were a series of massacres that masked another war, a war of conversion, culminating in a final atrocity that no Jedi could walk away from, save one. And that is what I sought to understand, how one could turn away from such power, give up the Force, and still live. But I see what happened now. It is because you were afraid. As you would pass judgment on her, I have come to pass judgment on you all. Do you wish to feel the teachings born of the Mandalorian Wars? Of all wars, of all tragedies that scream across the galaxy? Let me show you, you who have forever seen the galaxy through the Force. See it through the eyes of the exile. As the exile is frozen into place by the Force, this looks like the end. The Jedi Council blind her to the Force, send her packing back into exile, and then retreat to their holes to hide and wait and die. Sarek is visibly scared of what's about to happen, but this is not the end, at least not for her. Before the Masters could cause more problems, Kreia reveals herself by sauntering into the open-air Council meeting chamber. Remember, Kreia didn't want to do this. She wanted her identity to remain a secret, but the council f forced her hand, though in either case, she was going to take revenge on the Jedi who had exiled her in the first place. Kreia has plans to destroy the Force, and she can't do that without the exile, but she has also come to love Surik as a surrogate daughter. Likewise, Surik has come to love and genuinely care for Kreia, both as a master but also as the mother she never had. Despite their disagreements and the fact that Kreia is quite obviously manipulative and evil, both Master and Apprentice are linked by a force bond and through their shared experiences. Needless to say, Kreia will show no mercy to those who would harm her most prized student. In the clip, the camera pans to Kreia, who stands near the far door on the opposite side of the meeting chamber from the council, with Surik lying unconscious in the center of the room. Kreia begins her defense of Surik by lifting her one good arm aloft, simultaneously using the force to throw all three masters into the stone and vine-covered wall behind them and break their hold on Surik. Perhaps unsurprisingly, Surik immediately passes out from the shock of everything that has been revealed. Can't say that we blame her. Kreia warns the masters to stay away from Surik after the first force push, 
but Vruklamar is too stubborn and gets back up before being thrown against the wall a second time. In cut content from the RCM, Kraya removes her hood just after throwing the Masters and Surik passes out. Removing her hood was meant to bookend Kraya's time with the Exile, which began all the way back in the med bay of the Paragus mining facility. You'll recall that Kraya was presumed dead by the med bay staff and placed in the morgue. There she lay in a deep healing trance until Surik entered the morgue and began searching in another body for clues. When Surik's back was turned, Kraya adjusted her hood to cover her atrophied eyes before standing up. That was left in the base game, but removing the hood on Dantooine was cut for whatever reason. Since we're using the restored content mod, Kraya lowers her hood, showing off her atrophied white eyes and her long white hair braided on either side of her face. Even though she hasn't taken up the black garb of the Sith just yet, she's definitely Darth Kraya again. It's the clearest look we get at Kraya's face, and it may have been intended as a reference to Kraya and RNK, a.k.a. Brianna, the maiden's mother, being the same person. There are a number of clues sprinkled throughout the game, but it's never more apparent than right here when we see the similarities between Brianna and Kraya's character models. Why are we explaining all this when podcasting isn't a visual medium? It's there to lay more foundation for a big breakdown of why Kraya and RNK are probably the same person in the big finale episode on Malachor 5, of course. Because it wouldn't be Star Wars without needlessly convoluted plot points about bloodlines, now would it? Anyway, Kraya removes her hood, and the Jedi Masters regain their footing and prepare to face off against a Sith Lord, but it's not going to go how they think. They may have Kraya outnumbered 3-1, to one, but Kraya has the righteous fury of a mother defending her child. Also, power. So. Much. Power. The impassioned defense of Surik really is Kraya's shining moment as a character, despite the fact that she's revealing herself as a Sith Lord to both the Jedi and her apprentice. Normally, Kraya is selfish, aloof, and condescending, but coming to Surik's aid shows that she is capable of compassion, protection, and even love. It is obviously a self-serving action, because if the Council cut Surik off from the Force, it would probably blind Kraya too, and Kraya also needs to keep Surik alive if she's going to destroy the Force, but she could have accomplished all that without the impassioned speech in defense of Surik and without giving the Jedi a taste of their own medicine. Don't be fooled, even though the Exile is unconscious, she heard everything Kraya said and was meant to. Uh, Surik has been looking for her place in the galaxy since she was exiled in 3959. She's been looking for a family like she had with the Jedi and the soldiers under her command. Surik has been looking for a purpose and a mission, something that would help the galaxy. It is said that Surik didn't take up companions during her exile. She was lonely, traumatized, and depressed, but... Kreia changed all that. In Kreia, Surik found a powerful teacher who she came to love. Through Kreia, Surik found a new family in the form of 11 companions who are aiding in a quest to save the galaxy. Because of Kreia's actions and guidance, Surik now has a purpose. She's helping rebuild the Republic and revive the Jedi Order. 
Kreia helps Surik face her demons and overcome her past traumas on Duxun, Telos 4, and Dantooine. In short, Kreia has been a mother to Mitra Surik, a morally du- dubious Sith Lord of a mother, but a mother nonetheless, and this impeccable defense of Surik is all the proof you need. Every word is dripping with condescension and contempt for the Jedi. Every sentence is another damning indictment of not only these three Jedi, but the, the whole order. Kray's defense resembles nothing so much as a mother defending her helpless child from vicious attackers. Sure, she's manipulative and she's a Sith Lord, but she's still mom, damn it. None of that is meant to diminish or pigeonhole Kray's character as an evil stepmother trope or something like that. Far from it. As has been noted many times since the game's release, One of the reasons Kraya is such an outstanding character is that she turns the father figure trope on its head. The stoic elderly master who turns into a beloved father figure for the protagonist is a well-worn trope both in and out of the Star Wars universe. But a stoic elderly master who is portrayed as powerful and wise yet turns into a beloved mother figure? That's a rare feat, but the KOTOR 2 writers at Obsidian absolutely nailed it with Kraya. We'll talk more about the legacy of Kraya and Darth Treya at Malachor 5, but it's worth noting that this strong female character who plays against type was written in 2004, and considering the typical portrayal of women in pop culture and especially in video games, the fact that Kraya was written that well in 2004 seems like a minor miracle. It might sound like we're damning with faint praise, but Kraya is truly a great character generally, and a great female character specifically, and Obsidian deserves kudos for that. We're sure they care. Digression notwithstanding, there's still a clip to discuss. The third section is really a big wave of catharsis as Kraya takes out years of pent-up frustration on the Jedi. In this way, Kraya is a stand-in for the player. Kraya says everything you've ever wanted to scream at the stodgy, decaying Jedi Order, and does it with sass, too. Hell, she got to force-push Vruklamar twice, and while that may be fan service, you know that old asshole had it coming if you've ever played KOTOR 1 or 2. Probably deserved a force choke, too, if we're being honest. Kraya begins by berating the council. Quote, she has brought you truth and you condemn it? The arrogance, you will not harm her, you will not harm her ever again. End quote. Kavar pipes up to say that he was sure Kraya had died during the Mandalorian Wars, and Kraya seemingly confirms that she fought, but it only made her stronger. Strangely, none of the Jedi Masters address her as Kraya, and we don't know who they think she is. The funny thing is that one of the Jedi Council's predictions about Sirk immediately came to pass. The exile did unknowingly lead the Sith there. Thus, Kraya's appearance and reveal as a Sith Lord act to confirm all the misconceptions the Masters have about Sirk. At this point, we should probably start calling Kraya by her Sith name, Darth Treya, since she has re- revealed herself to the Jedi as a Sith Lord. So everything before this moment is Kraya, everything after is Treya. Uh, The Sith Triumvirate is now back to full strength again, though two of its leaders are unaware of the hostile takeover in process. Rook Lamar then chugs the XL, claiming that serving as Treya's apprentice would cause her to fall to the dark side like Revan. Fruk knows that Sirik is unconscious. She's passed out directly in front of the 
directly in the center of the room they're standing in, he's just taking one more chance to be a dick before the end. Like we said, Atreus should have force choked to that old bastard. At this, the Jedi Masters draw and ignite their lightsabers. Kavar is dual-wielding twin blue lightsabers. Rook Lamar has a single green lightsaber. And Zezkael has his familiar purple double-bladed lightsaber. They're all beautiful weapons, so it's a shame that they won't do any good against Treya. Their laser swords are of no use here. Master L then proudly noted that they had lured the Sith out and directly into their clutches, seemingly accomplishing both of their goals. These foolish words are the last ones that Zezkiel would ever utter, and they speak to the massive mistakes made by the Jedi Order going back decades. Treya could have just ended the encounter right here. It's clear that she has the power to do so, but that is not her style, and it wouldn't achieve revenge. Her revenge requires that her enemies know that they're wrong and she's right and they know why. Instead, she's going to salt the wound and let the Jedi know all about their myriad failures. And since KOTOR 2 was released about six months before Revenge of the Sith, it's also interesting to note that Kreia's takedown doubles as meta-commentary on the problems of the prequel era Jedi. Darth Treya Thunders, quote, how could you ever hope to know the threat you face when you have never walked in the dark places of the galaxy, faced war and death on such a scale? If you had traveled far enough instead of waiting for the echo to reach you, perhaps you would have seen it for what it was. And quote. Here, Trya finally spells out the fundamental problem that the Jedi Order has faced since the beginning of the Mandalorian Wars. The Jedi Masters exhibit a total lack of understanding both about the state of the galaxy and the Sith. For decades, they sat comfortably in their ivory towers on Coruscant and Dantooine, safely hidden away from the evils of the galaxy. Their caution in the face of the Mandalorian threat is revealed for what it has always been, cowardice. The Outer Rim burned and was subjugated under the Mandalorian yoke from 3976 to 3964, but the Jedi decided a hands-off approach was needed. Then, in 3964, the Mandalorians invaded the Republic and began decimating entire sectors, and yet, the Jedi still refused to intervene. Again, the Council advised restraint and pointedly refused to aid the Republic in a war for the first and only time in more than 21,000 years that they served as protectors of peace and justice. The Council would surely counter this by saying the Jedi Council requires them to be pacifists to never seek out war, which is true, but they forgot that the Code also requires them to love others, be good stewards in whatever capacity they serve, and to protect the innocent. The Jedi Council, as much of the Order, used the ideal of pacifism to mean they should never take up arms, even when civilians are dying by the thousands. In this, we can see how the Jedi Order from our narrative is the polar opposite of the prequel-era Jedi Order. Whereas the prequel Jedi joined the Clone Wars to protect, at least initially, and became warmongers, our Old Republic Jedi abstained from the Mandalorian Wars under the guise of pacifism and were hunted to near extinction. Then again, maybe they aren't so dissimilar. In the end, each iteration of the Jedi was doomed by its lack of knowledge. Apathy is death.
As we've said many times, Trey is acting out of love and compassion for Surik, but this is also personal. Darth Trey has been exiled twice. The first occurred between 3964 and 3962, when she was exiled from the Jedi Order after many of her students, including Revan, went to fight in the Mandalorian Wars. Later, Treya's second exile, this time from the Sith, happened sometime between 3954 and 3952. We've already seen a flashback to Treya's second exile, but her exile from the Jedi years earlier profoundly affected her. Treya, then using the name Kreia, always held a special hatred in her heart for the Jedi Masters who first betrayed her. The Jedi Council that exiled Kreia contained Vruklamar, Kavar, Zezkael, Atris, Lanavash, Vandar Toker, and a couple of others. We know that Vandar Toker and Lanavash are both dead, while the other two we don't need to worry about, so that's four down. That only leaves the three Jedi Masters on Dantooine and our old friend Atris, who will get hers soon enough. This is it, the culmination of her revenge on the fools, hypocrites, and charlatans who betrayed her. Being Treya, she's going to turn the knife a couple of times, though. Since we're using the RCM clip, you heard Treya personally mock each Jedi Master after threatening them, quote, Do you wish to feel the teachings of the Mandalorian Wars, of all wars, of all tragedies that scream across the galaxy? End quote. They never sought that knowledge out, so Darth Treya brings it to them. Beginning with Vruk Lamar, she asked how he missed those teachings on Dantooine, with both its surface and citizens so badly scarred by the Jedi Civil War and the Sith. Concluding with Lamar, Treya says, quote, I have endured I have endured your corruption of my other students. You shall not have this one. End quote. Next, Treya mocks Kavar for being so close to Daxun, yet still unable to feel the pain, the death and pain that pour off the demon moon through the Force. Remnants of the battle Surik fought in. Finally, Treya comes to Zeskael, mocking the Jedi Master who couldn't feel the trauma flowing in waves off the millions of refugees crammed into slums on Nar Shaddaa. Apathy is death. By now, you might be asking, what type of knowledge did the Jedi lack? We've been talking about it all episode, and Triad just came right out and said it, but what is it exactly? It's everything that comes along with facing pain and death. It's the trauma that comes from facing too many dark nights of the soul, the pain and suffering that accompanies all tragedies. And it is the catharsis that comes from facing all that pain, failure, and regret you've accumulated. In short, it's everything you learn about yourself and others from all the worst shit that's ever happened to you in life. The Jedi, consciously or otherwise, feared these things and purposefully ignored them for whatever reason. Going to war against the Mandalorians was hell, and it changed many for the worst, but it was the right decision because they had to be stopped. The Outer Rim had been subjugated almost completely. The Mandalorians were an invading army that destroyed planets and committed genocide. By 3962, the Mandalorians had launched a Scorched Earth campaign that took them all the way to Core World Duro. If Revan Malak and Mitra Surik hadn't shown up with a fleet of interdictor cruisers and Jedi reinforcements, the Republic would have fallen. Even after all this and knowing what was happening, the Jedi Council ignored it. Then they compounded their folly by not learning from the Jedi Civil War, which decimated the Order. 
3996, at the end of the Great Sith War, the Jedi Order had more than a thousand members. By 3956, at the end of the Jedi Civil War, the Order had less than a hundred members. Somehow, even after all that, the Jedi Council still didn't learn, and frankly, it seems like they never tried. The Jedi who went to the Conclave on Qatar were trying to do something about the problem, but they didn't understand because their leaders never even tried to. Instead, Darth Nihilus showed up in 3952 and consumed the world, leaving only eight, now seven, active Jedi in the galaxy. The galling thing is, it's apparent that Jedi Masters don't know who is hunting them, just that they are Sith. Trya, Nihilus, and Sion have committed genocide against the Jedi, and the remaining Masters can't even learn their names. Apathy is death. By now, Darth Treya has walked to the center of the chamber and stands over her unconscious student. She's building to the crescendo now. She has mocked the Jedi Masters, belittled them, and made their deepest fears known, but Treya's final withering rebuke will explain that their cowardice and desire to hide from the evils of the galaxy is what doomed them. She sees, quote, there's a place in the galaxy where the dark side of the Force runs strong. It is something of the Sith, but it was fueled by war. It corrupts all that walk on its surface, drowns them in the power of the dark side. It corrupts all life, and it feeds on death. End quote. The Jedi never knew of such places because they were content to rule over the galaxy from their ivory towers. But Darth Treya says, quote, Revan knew the power of such places, the power in making them. They can be used to break the will of others, of Jedi, promising them power and turning them to the dark side, end quote. That crucible that the masters feared was created by Darth Revan eight years earlier and had been used to build the army of dark Jedi. They fought in the, in the Jedi Civil War and then the Sith Civil War and were instrumental in the first Jedi Purge, yet the Jedi Masters didn't know who they were or where they had come from. Darth Treya, knowing that the Council's lack of knowledge is what doomed them, taunts her enemies accordingly, quote, Do you never wonder how Revan corrupted so many of the Jedi, so much of the Republic, so quickly? End quote. This is the grand point about the Jedi Order. How could they expect to defeat a threat they didn't understand and didn't care to? The Jedi hadn't seen and felt war or even tragedy. They hadn't held their dying loved ones and comrades in their arms while telling them it would be okay. They didn't care when it was happening to innocent people. They cloistered themselves away so they wouldn't feel the pain and the death, the pain and death surging through the galaxy from 50 years of near continuous war. The Jedi couldn't know the darkness and the evil it breeds because they never confronted it. Apathy is death. Darth Trya's final remarks are mostly for and about Surik. Trya is proud of Surik, knows how powerful she is and how important she will become. Indeed, Darth Trya, ever the Revan fanboy, will later say that Surik is her greatest student, even greater than Revan. It's high praise to be sure, but it's not unwarranted, as we will see. Trya says, quote, The Mandalorian Wars were a series of massacres that masked another war, a war of conversion, culminating in a final atrocity that no Jedi can walk away from, save one, end quote. 
Surik is unique, she is special, and Triad knows it. The exile is a dark spot in the Force who becomes more powerful around other Force sensitives, feeding off of them subconsciously and never giving in to the dark side. She literally holds the power to destroy this universe and the Force, and all Surik wants to do is rebuild the Old Republic, fix the Jedi Order, and go hang out with her old buddy, Revan. Trya says, and that is what I sought to understand, how one could turn away from such power, give up the Force, and still live. End quote. Here, Darth Trya is admitting that she was wrong about Surik. She believed that Surik intentionally cut herself off from the Force after Malachor V, but it was instead a subconscious act of self-preservation. Finally, the Master kneels beside her student, speaking quietly to her. Quote, but I see what happened now. It is because you were afraid. End quote. Despite how this might sound, Tri is not condescending to Zurich for her fear. She's admitting she didn't know the truth until that moment. Even the mighty Darth Triad makes mistakes. Zurich didn't give up her power willingly, as Tri had supposed. She didn't even know she had such power until earlier in the encounter. Zurich's subconscious cut her off from the Force in self-preservation, something that had never happened before or since. Zurich didn't seek power only to turn away from it. She tried to help the galaxy, made some mistakes, and suffered for it. Zurich was vulnerable and scared, but in the end, Treya loved the exile more because of those qualities, not in spite of them. Apathy is death. Rising, Darth Treya returns her attention to the Masters and prepares to teach them the final lesson. She's already castigated and shamed them, but the Jedi Council will never learn, and Treya knows this. So she has to show them the truth as only she can. Whereas the Jedi Masters railroaded Surik in a trial she wasn't prepared for, Darth Treya is doing the same by coming to her student's defense. The Masters never intended to allow Surik to defend herself from the charges, so they weren't prepared to respond when a Sith Lord showed up in the Exile's defense. Not that it matters, since Darth Treo wasn't going to let them defend themselves either. You know, turnabout is fair play, after all. Darth Treya, taking on the role of judge, jury, and executioner, announces her verdict. Quote, As you would pass judgment on her, I have come to pass judgment on you all. Do you wish to feel the teachings born of the Mandalorian Wars, of all wars, of all tragedies that scream across the galaxy? Let me show you, you who have forever seen the galaxy through the Force, see it through the eyes of the exile. End quote. The Jedi Masters brandish their lightsabers and attack in unison the moment Treya finishes speaking, but she's unmoved. The Jedi made it less than three steps before Treya unleashed a flash of purple energy from her abdomen that hit each master simultaneously, draining the force from each of her enemies. In some versions, including the original, uh, the original official release, the force drain is orange instead of purple. The masters had no recourse against Treya, who consumed their force energies fully, just like she had taught Darth Nihilus. The Masters were prepared to use their power to cut Surik off from the Force, but never considered it being used against them. If the player investigates the bodies of the fallen Masters before departing, the game will display a message that says, quote, This Master is dead, drained of all life. It's worse than lifeless. It's like an absence in the Force. Treya cut them off from the Force so totally that they couldn't even become one with the Force. 
a fate worse than death. So you will do nothing? Apathy is death, worse than death, because at least a rotting corpse feeds the beasts and insects. Apathy is death. Apathy is death. Apathy is death. Apathy is death. Statement. Apathy is death. 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 Kavar and Zez Kael had each served on the Jedi High Council since 3963 and each was of unknown age when they died in 3951 on Dantooine. Master Vuk Lamar, wonderfully voiced by Ed Asner, served on the Jedi Enclave Council since at least 3993 and was a member of the Jedi Hype Council by 3963 at the latest. In his nearly 40 years of leadership, the Jedi Order went from more than 1,000 members to less than 10. He was a truly terrible Jedi, and the galaxy is a better place now that he's dead. Sorry, there's just not a nice way to eulogize someone who was that bad at their job. The only other candidate for being worse at a job is Master Yoda, but at least he learned from his mistakes and was likable. Interestingly, if the exile goes to the dark side and slaughters the masters on Dantooine, Kraya chastises them, even Darth Kraya and all her hatred of the Jedi, prefers the light side confrontation and her disgust is palpable. Quote, you have fa- failed me completely and utterly. And quote, it wasn't enough for trying to kill them. They had to learn why they were wrong. And if they wouldn't learn from the exile, she was going to do it herself. With that, there are now only four active Jedi left in the galaxy. Disra Larjada, Basta Lashan, Atris, and the Sunrider, poss- probably Vima. Lur Jada and the Sunrider play no role in KOTOR 2, but Bastila Shan will make a brief appearance later in the game, and of course there's Atris. Even though Clip 3 ends with Trya using Force Drain, the cutscene continues in-game. Trya walks back into the courtyard where she sat earlier and, conf- and finds Brianna waiting for her. Knowing of the respect that and love that Brianna has for Surik, Trya lies and says that she killed Surik. This lie does the trick, and Brianna arrests Darth Trya to bring her before the last Jedi Master there is, Atris. This was all part of Trya's plan, as Atris is the last living member of the Jedi Council that exiled her. Trya will take revenge on Atris and then go to Malachor V to resume her place as Sith Master and leader of the Sith Triumvirate. She and Sirk won't meet again until the Trias core. Meanwhile, back in the rebuilt Enclave, an unconscious Sirk Here's the thoughts of her meatbag companions waiting on the Ebon Hawk. The Exile hearing these thoughts was cut from the original release, but has since appeared in the RCM. In order, Surik hears the thoughts of Brianna, Mandalore, Mira, Michael, Visus Mar, Rand, and Baldur. All their thoughts center on Malachor V, which touched the lives of Trillions. Brianna's thoughts are hard to place since she's already arrested Treya and departed Dantooine in another ship, but they're included anyway. The Handmaiden is upset that she lost the Exile just like she lost her father and just like her father lost her mother at Malachor V. 
Mandalore's thoughts go back to his people, and he resolves to not fail them again like he did on Malachor V. Mira is concerned that if the companions don't find a way to stop Treya, that everyone in the galaxy will die, just like her Mandalorian family at Malachor V. Visus is meditating, and her thoughts dwell on Nihilus, though she's not interested in betrayal. The Miraluka Jedi says, quote, Soon your ship will come, my master. I will bring her before you, but I will not let you have her. Soon your ship shall come from that which made you. End quote. Nihilus's flagship, the Ravager, was pulled from the graveyard of ships that orbits the remains of Malachor V. Atten thinks back to his own experiences at Malachor V, wondering if he would have been better off staying on board the, sh- the ship to die instead of fleeing in an escape pod. Atten's ship was caught on the edge of the mass shadow generator's blast radius, so the crew had time to escape. Finally, there's poor sweet Bowder, who has one final request, and the Zabrak Jedi knows Surik is listening. Quote, Your command echoes still, General, and I obey as I did at Malachor V. I have destroyed planets for you, General, but now, this once, if we could do something in this galaxy... I need to do this or I will die inside, like I died at Malachor V. I know you can hear me. I have always known. It is why I followed you. You know where you must go. It calls to you still. And she must be stopped there, now, or she will bring the screams of Malachor V to the galaxy, just as we carried the echo all this way. Now Malachor V comes to us, and I wish to face it this last time. End quote. Sadly, Baudur carries too much guilt with him from the activation of the mass shadow generator, and he's atoned for his sin, so we're going to grant his wish to blow the loose confederation of planetoids known as Malachor V to hell. But first, we have to make a brief pit stop at Delos IV to try and disrupt Trias' plans with Atris. However, unbeknownst to Surik, they will also have to contend with a surprise attack by Dark Nihilus and his Sith fleet against Telos IV. But why in the hell would Nihilus attack Telos IV? He needs massive quantities of force energy like he found in Qatar to sustain his hunger, but Telos IV has very little force energy since it's mostly lifeless wastes. As we all know, life creates and acts as a conduit for the force, so lifeless worlds have less force energy, ipso facto. The short answer is that Darth Nihilus is doing it because he was deceived. Try told a lie intended to draw Nihilus, a living superweapon, into a trap against the one and only thing that could possibly stop him, another walking wound in the Force. Why does Try want to destroy one of her fellow Sith Triumvirs? Well, aside from the whole betrayal and exile thing, it's also because she would kill the entire galaxy to sate his hunger. He would kill the entire galaxy to sate his hunger, and Try can't have that. We weren't kidding when she, we said she didn't want to kill everyone. The trap was laid in episode 6.8 when Cryo snuck off to revive Colonel Tobin after the successful defense of Onderon. She told Tobin a lie about Telos IV that she knew would be reported to Nihilus and induce him to attack. This would, in turn, force Zerk to come to the world's defense by drawing her into a fateful duel with Nihilus. That duel will attempt to answer the age-old question, what happens when an unstoppable force meets an immovable object? And, wouldn't you know it, Atris is right there on Telos 4-2. How convenient Zurich will be able to duel Trias two remaining targets, Atris and Nihilus, without ever leaving the Telos 4 system.
However, you're now also wondering who will defend Telos IV if Nihilus is bringing the Sith fleet. It's not like Surik and the remaining crew of the Ebon Hawk can do it alone. Sure, Citadel Station is technically protected by the Telosian Security Force, but there are a bunch of Keystone Cops on their best day. And this is where Michael saves the day. During the confrontation, we intentionally skipped over a brief cutscene between Michael and Kreia, and also skipped Michael's thoughts that Sirik would hear because they dovetail with that cutscene. As you'll see, we skip past them at the time because they require a lot of independent explanation that was just easier to give all at once. During the second section, just before Kreia met Visus Mar on her way to interrupt the Masters, the cutscene begins. Kreia used the Force to anonymously speak with Michael and influence his decisions. She tells Michael that he must warn his Republic handlers of the impending Sith attack on Telos IV. If he doesn't, Kreia says countless innocent lives will be lost and it will all be his fault. Michael is hesitant to do this because he doesn't want to betray Surik, even though he's a Republic spy under the auspices of Admiral Karth Onassi. Michael agrees to betray Surik's trust for the greater good, which is what she would have wanted anyway. None of this background info is very clear from what Kreia says to Michael in the cutscene, which is another reason we didn't try to shoehorn it in. Later, when Surik hears the thoughts of her companions, Michael is thinking about his decision to contact Onassi to protect Telos IV. Michael reminds himself that he did it to aid Surik so that they can undo Revan's mistakes at Malachor V. Meanwhile, back in the rebuilt enclave, the exile rises and finds herself alone. Kray is gone, the three Jedi Masters lay dead in a heap, and Surik is probably wondering what the fuck just happened, which is where we'll pick up next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of A People's History of the Old Republic. Next time, we will survey the fallout from this confrontation, finally deal with Atris, and watch what happens when an unstoppable force that consumes worlds meets an immovable object that consumes the force. Please rate, comment, and subscribe to Fotor on SoundCloud or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at PhotorPod or email us at PhotorPodcast at gmail.com. Send us questions and comments and we will answer them on the show. I'm at AthertonKD on Twitter. And I'm at LukeIsAmazing on Twitter. Thank you again and may the Force be with you.